This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Motherfucklore is brought to you by the show's very generous supporters on Patreon. Supporters like Calvin McLaughlin and Mindy Corcoran Turley. Neil Buikas, Calvin Angus Mindy. Today's episode topic was suggested to us on Discord by one of our Patreon supporters. This is one of a number of benefits that we are offering to listeners who are generous enough to support us. Listeners want to support the show but don't want a monthly deduction can avail of discounts for annual memberships. So check out patreon.com forward slash Derek for more. of Podcast Network. Welcome to Motherfuck Lore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland. I am Tara Cochet. And I'm Pather O'Kivonic. How are you getting on, Pather? Yeah, same as I was last week. Like, I love that you ask me that question every week with a renewed sense of optimism that there's going to be any update and that my life has become any more interesting in these pandemic times. It's like, God bless your, your innocence, like... Because in these pandemic times, you don't meet, you know, you don't see meet your colleagues physically. People don't actually ask how you are. And, you know, sometimes it's good to be reminded that someone actually, someone cares, you know? Oh, well. Um, isn't caring what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, I'm touched. How am I? I'm touched. Have you been watching Emily in Paris? I have not. I, look, I assume that it's good because it's getting great reviews and lots of my friends are, are enjoying it. But I refuse to watch something where the, the hook is Anglo-centrism and, and monoglot cultural imperialism. It's not my bag. I'm not, not, down, I'm not down with that, as they say. <laughs> are you watching it? Are you watching it? I've seen it. I'm so my ah. wife and I watched it. And I, I, it, it occurred to me that there was, it, there's... Um, intentionally and unintentionally raised an awful lot of issues and as like like a lot of people I saw it and then I saw a lot of the coverage from how it was badly received it was in France and how different people were talking about how the Paris was being treated in a very in a very touristy way it was a very and I was thinking that that this is maybe something that happens often in romantic comedies or not and one of our listeners who supports the podcast on Patreon asked recently if we could look at how Ireland and Irishness is represented in romantic comedies and it occurred to me that as a as a comparison point we should probably yes we should look at how our Irish people Irish characters Irish actors and Ireland as a setting is is represented in, in the romantic comedy genre okay so here's the thing we recorded this episode before the trailer dropped for wild mountain time but let's just take a moment to appreciate how truly awful that trailer is welcome to ireland there's these green fields and there's us whatever that is i don't care we're known to each other quite the while now but you marry me if it comes to that i'll freeze my eggs i don't understand you people will you call a Wild Mountain Time promises a vision of Ireland that is beyond our worst nightmares, uh, perpetually stuck in the 1950s, admiring of Rolls Royces, uh, and yet still perfectly capable of discussing concepts like IVF and travelling transatlantically to New York. It's, It's as if Ireland froze at the time of Brooklyn, 
and the rest of the world just kept on going. Now, given that it's based on a play called Outside Mullingar, there's a strong argument to suggest that that's an accurate representation of Westmeath, but it's not really true. Oh, but you bring him here to look me over like I was a red heifer? It's just another ridiculous, romanticised, simplified, patronising version of Ireland in yet another romantic comedy. Um, So unfortunately, more of the same. It's as if the writer, who actually has family outside Mullingar, that's why Shanley called his play Outside Mullingar, uh, it's as if he just took Leap Year as his only cultural touchstone for deciding what Ireland is. I mean, it just, I think genuinely it could be considered a war crime. Anyway, back to the show. I thought, instead of just making kind of smart, alky remarks with, oh, no, the world doesn't get us, I thought, let's get an expert <laughs> on the romantic comedy genre to actually to talk with this, to put these Irish performances or Irish characters in the context of the development of the entire genre. So the AV Club, which is always a good read, has run a series called When Romance Met Comedy, looking at the actual history of the romantic comedy genre and, you know, and, and key points in which films kind of represented turning points for the genre itself. The journalist who wrote the series is Caroline Cedar, and she's with us tonight. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. And um, thank you so much for coming, for joining us all the way from Chicago. Yeah, I thought Emily in Paris, well, who is also from Chicago, I thought the show was terrible, but I'm so glad that it brought us together today to do this. This is a great outcome from having watched it all. I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Caroline, um, first of all, tell tell us about yourself. How did you you get to to write this wonderful series for the AV Club? Mm, So I'm a film and TV critic, like you said, based in Chicago, and I have always loved and sometimes loved to hate the romantic comedy genre. And I think it is a, it's an interesting genre to look at because it doesn't tend to get a ton of critical respect, although I do think that is Mm -hmm. sort of changing recently. Um, So yeah, with the column, I just sort of look back really, you know, from the beginning, from early 30s, 40s movies up to present day. Just sort of the the highs, which I think there are a lot of, and then the lows, which there are also a lot of. Uh, yeah, and just sort of examine the ins and outs of the genre. It's funny. I'm, I'm actually really excited to have this conversation because I've thought about romantic comedies through a lot of different lenses over the years, but mm-hmm. I have never once thought about them through the lens of Irishness in particular. So I, I'm, this is like a really fun mental experiment <laughs> for me to just think about the genre in a whole new way. It's fantastic because I, I was I was looking at this and I, I know, I mean, Irish people can be very sensitive about how we're portrayed in Hollywood and maybe particularly in the, in the 1950s, some of the very kind of um, the key early representations were linked to uh, tourism and the promotion of Ireland. I think uh, The Quiet Man being the most famous example, and uh, but also, I suppose, Ryan's daughter and how these were kind of were, were linked to tourism campaigns in some ways. But I mean, there's romantic comedy is a very, is a very specific genre. It's a, it's there's a, there's maybe while like France and Britain had they had their film industries in the the middle of the century. The the idea of 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 selling the idea of of a country being a happy place to be and being and flaunting its wealth and its uh, and its opportunities wasn't something they were necessarily doing. Whereas America was. I do think that there is. Um... The, I think the romantic comedy on film really starts with these early screwball comedies that were coming out of America, sort of in the early days of Hollywood and then into the 30s and 40s. So a lot of like broad physical comedy. It was it was a time when the rating system was pretty intense. So you had to sort of have these clever workarounds for not being able to, you know, show things that were too sexualized. And so physical comedy was a way around that. And then it just sort of continued to evolve um, and then I, I do think sort of spread globally, certainly um, in the in the 90s, especially there was a big renaissance of romantic comedies in America. And then that hopped over into England and I guess maybe to a lesser extent in Ireland as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that the 90s for for like modern audiences, I think the 90s, you know, Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, that's a really big touchstone for what we think of as the genre 
uh, yeah. sort of how it's presented contemporarily. But certainly, you know, there's Golden Age 50s musicals and sort of these Doris Day Rock Hudson comedies from the 60s. So it has a, a long history for sure. That's the thing. And, it's, and you obviously call the series When Romance Met Comedy, um, which obviously which appears to be a play on When Harry Met Sally. That seems to be the <laughs> one of the absolute key documents here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the Nora Ephron film from 1989. And then shortly after that, there was also Pretty Woman, which came out in 1990. And I would say that those are the two, the sort of one-two punch that really launched this sort of 90s renaissance of Mm. the genre. And I think you have, like, they were very, it was a very popular commercially and mostly critically genre in the 90s. And then in the sort of early 2000s, there were still some things people liked a lot, but I think that was where we start seeing the the downhill trend and sort of, I think by the like early 2010s, that's really where people really strongly turn against this genre. And mm. it almost sort of goes away for a while because there's just so much animosity towards these, I mean, frankly, pretty terrible, like Catherine Heigl movies or some of the later <laughs> Matthew McConaughey mm. movies um, that sort of sour uh, the genre. But he's just, real... he's just a guy who refuses to learn. Isn't it charming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of very retrograde <laughs> ideas. It became a very much a um, quantity over quality time period. And I think actually more recently, just within the past handful of years, we're sort of seeing another renaissance where people are rediscovering romantic comedies and, and actually trying to make them good again, which is really nice to see. Did uh, did When Harry Met Sally and, and Pretty Woman, that kind of, that one-two punch of the, the turn of the 90s, did they legitimize the genre and sort of clear the way for some really, really good movies, but also unfortunately kind of signpost that this was a genre that was ripe for exploitation and ultimately themselves lead to the downfall of what is a pretty a pretty standard like linchpin of American cinema. I think it is a a thing of, you know, when something becomes popular, we can get burnt down on it. And I think you can see an equivalent in like superhero movies today where that's obviously a genre that has huge high points and is very popular but is also sort of becoming this thing where everyone feels like they need to have some sort of superhero property and so we're getting a whole bunch of them uh, to various degrees of success. Um so yeah, I guess you could say that the the you know, the start of it was eventually its downfall. But I think that there is so much good that comes out of the romantic comedy genre, too. I think it's um, one of the few genres where women's lives are just entirely central, um, mm. which is not that common in the history of film in general. And I think it is sort of a genre that does really appeal to, um, I mean, hopefully appeals to everyone, but I think traditionally appeals to a more female-dominated audience. And so I think that's another thing with why it, it can sometimes be seen like it's taken less seriously. It's sort of written off as being frivolous in a way that, you know, a lot of genres have their, their tropes and their predictability. I don't, I've never really seen a superhero movie where I didn't have a strong sense of how it was going to end, but Mm. things like that can sometimes (laughs) get held against the romantic comedy genre more than they get held against other genres. That's very true, because I think that, like, in some ways you think that a, a sonnet is always going to end the same way. A limerick is, has a very strict st- structure, and similarly, romantic comedies have it, and the idea it's what you do with that within the limitations. For a writer, there's nothing scarier than a blank page, and the idea that a strict structure allows you to, I guess, to to dance within that frame, if you're doing it well. If you're doing it well, that's a big if. If is doing a lot of heavy lifting yeah. there, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, you 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 find that that actually that a dance with dance steps can still gives great opportunities for creativity and the fact that the limitations aren't necessarily a bad thing they're not they're not considered to be bad things in in car chase movies or they worked for Shakespeare yes they did <laughs> you know we teach we teach every kid in the country about Shakespeare's romantic comedies and they're as predictable as anything you know they're faced with adversity. There's a parting of the ways because of that adversity, but they're going to end up together. And we all know it and we all learn about it. We all write essays about it, but apparently that's a classic. But, you know, failure to launch isn't for some reason. The much maligned yeah. Matthew McConaughey again. It, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I think I think so many of these, you know, rom-com tropes date back certainly to Shakespeare. I think Jane Austen has a lot of, you know, credit for the modern day genre as well. Um, And it is interesting too, you know, something like Shakespeare is obviously so respected or someone like Woody Allen, who's this sort of male auteur perspective on the romantic comedy genre. I think his films, you know, for for such a long time got so much critical respect and and Mm. then something, 
that's maybe gentler or more comedic or directed by a woman um, is maybe not given the same respect. So I, I completely agree that these tropes can be used for good and bad, but that they're they're not deserving of being written off uh, just as a whole. So one of the things that people often, modern viewers, when they see a screwball comedy, and maybe a lot of those films from the old Frank Capra films, is the way people speak. There's this, this kind of funny transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent is used. Uh, like people don't, no, no one ever spoke like, yes, come here. So, but like people didn't know ever speak in that kind of voice that, that like Kerry, no one in England ever spoke like Kerry Grant, yeah. Grant did. <laughs> and they, they, you have this kind of accent. And I, I remember being told that um, in earlier Hollywood, they, they were consciously making films for a, a world audience, not who, maybe, many of whom were, were, were coming to English from, from, from an angle and they wanted to kind of come up with this, a, a neutral but still slightly American way of speaking. And that this was this is one of the reasons people speak like that in the old movies. I'm awfully sorry. I couldn't be more apologetic, really. Well, I might have known you were here. I had a feeling just as I hit the floor. That was your hat. Yeah, yeah. Look at it. Look. <laughs> yes, it's too bad, isn't it? Well, Joe here was showing me a trick and the olive got away. First you drop an olive and then I sit on my head. It all fits perfectly. Oh yes, but you can't do that trick without dropping some of the olives. It takes practice. The idea that you can actually get to a point where you have an international love story in a film probably wasn't even considered for a while. Yeah, I guess I really, this is a good question because I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about when sort of international as in people from two different countries, romances started to Mm -hmm. become popular. But yeah, I guess that was not really a huge hallmark, although I guess you do have, like you said, Cary Grant as some sort of English representation. Um, but yeah, it is, it is hmm. not like his, his movies, that was not often a, a huge plot point per se. Um, hmm. The regionality of characters. In the Philadelphia story, I think his character is just an American who happens to have a kind of a, a yeah. waspy East Coast accent. And I think... Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to double down on this. <laughs> it's set in Philadelphia, so you can you can say that. Yes, He's a, I think there's just such a heightened quality, particularly to those classic screwball comedies, but also just to the romantic comedy genre in general. It's it's not always a genre that's going for realism, and sometimes that's held as a knock against it. But I actually think it's just sort of a facet of the genre that it exists within this heightened world where you're not, you know, this is not necessarily a realistic love story, but it's capturing something that is real and relatable. Um, And so, yeah, I think that maybe, maybe the sort of accents connect to that in some way. So while we're on the subject of accents, we, we, we did want to bring you on to talk about Irishness in romantic comedies. And I don't know if you'd necessarily agree with this, but I think I'm I'm going to posit that it all starts 1952, John Ford, John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, The Quiet Man. This is where we probably are fully conscious of the Irishness of a setting and characters squarely within, if not entirely romantic comedy, certainly romantic comedy drama. Um mm-hmm. Would you would you would you agree with that? I mean, this is this is not something that we would. I know it won it won best director for John Ford, but we in Ireland tend to look back at this and we cringe hard. <laughs> well, this is actually a great example of you both teaching me. Like I said, I I had not thought about this genre through the prism of Irishness per se. So I've never actually seen The Quiet Man, but just watching the trailer and reading the plot synopsis, it is sort of a fascinating it maybe does set some templates for, you know, how Irishness goes on to be presented in romance where you get a sort of culture clash and maybe, maybe one side teaching the other side, something um, Mm. to various degrees of problematicness (laughs) or success. Um, But yeah, it is an interesting, I think, I think, you know, from what I can tell from the little I've seen of this movie, it is sort of from the beginning, you have this Ireland is this very like virile, pastoral place sort of in comparison to to something that's maybe more like corporate or urban in America and how you have, you know, Americans will go to Ireland and and have some lesson to learn or some lesson to impart 
about these sort of very, very broad, <laughs> probably not that accurate um, yeah. cultural stereotypes. But you can you can kind of write the plot yourself, you know, of your uh, of your American romantic comedy set in Ireland. The the American uh, takes a break from their busy life to come back to Ireland, which is always for some reason just a few decades behind. Yeah, uh, you know, like like there's there's a bit where like the jaunting car plays a particular role in The Quiet Man. It's set in the 1920s. So Sean Thornton, John Wayne's character, he's used to automobiles and he gets over to Ireland and, jeez, we wouldn't be having any of those. Get into the jaunting car there and a horse will pull you along and there's a donkey and cart and things. And, you know, the, we're just a little bit far behind. And that's that's fine, I think, for The Quiet Man because it's set in the 1920s. But where it starts to really piss people off is when you get up to the 1990s and they're still talking about donkey and cart, or they're still talking about, Jesus, we wouldn't have any old internet. What are you talking about? We don't have the internet there. Get up in the back of the trailer there and I'll bring you down to the local hotel. And it's always the same trope. It's really mm. fucking annoying. And it's sort of like no one's costuming has changed since, like, the 1940s. Like, everyone that's at a bar who, who you know, is just full on in cosplay for some sort of 1940s old men. Oh, well, now, Caroline, to be fair, like, yeah. the studios don't have a great wardrobe budget. Like, they are still the costumes <laughs> from the 1940s. Like. Yeah, they just pull out the old ones. And yeah. Them. It's probably true. They have not updated. They're like, okay, pull out, wheel in the uh, Irish countryside wardrobe, and we'll just keep dressing everyone in that. The first um, movie I ever saw in the cinema was E.T., and I was watching it as my dad was there. And do you, you know that meme of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen? Mm-hmm. Like he was doing that during the frog, famous frog scene when um, E.T. is watching uh, The Quiet Man. Mm-hmm. And, and Elliot <laughs> is replicating everything he did. And my dad's like, oh my God, I, I, I recognize this. I get this reference. And <laughs> That's very sweet. I, I don't think anything ages anyone more effectively than when they confess what the first movie they saw in the cinema was. Well, so you, you, ET. What was that? 1981. Uh, it was. It was a couple of years after that. Now, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was in the cinema. <laughs> this is cinema in Dingle. This is cinema in Dingle. Dingle Powder. Cinema in Dingle. All right. Yeah. Was it showing the classics? Was it? It was going a different pace. Look. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, okay. 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 Old Man O'Shea. Uh, we know. We know. First, I'll. I'll. I'll confess as well. The first movie I ever saw in the cinema was Home Alone. The first oh. one. So that's you know, I, I think am. the first movie I, I ever saw was a re-release of Sleeping Beauty. So I'm just a complete mystery. I could be any age at all. I could, <laughs> could be. be. <laughs> re-releases. Oh, that's tricky. Yeah, I'm they'll get you. Throwing a spanner in the works now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a good way of dodging that question. So then, I, think, I think what what, uh, what Patter is alluding to there is a film maybe a lot of people know is Leap Year, which is ten years old this year. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. You know, how have you celebrated the 10-year anniversary of Leap Year? Yeah, well, <laughs> this was so for years, I have always, when I need to reference sort of a bad romantic comedy of the 2010s, Leap Year has always been just a go-to for me as sort mm-hmm. of an example of, of the worst of what the genre can do. Because I, I spend a lot of time defending the genre, but I, you know, want to acknowledge its flaws too. And I actually reached the point where I was nervous that I was being too harsh on it. I was like, you know, I haven't seen this movie in a while. Maybe I'm remembering the bad the bad points, but I rewatched it for this podcast and I can confirm, no, I, if anything, I was too easy on it. It is a <laughs> truly terrible film, mm. <laughs> both as a, I think as a depiction of Ireland and just as a romantic comedy in general, it really, it really is an example of that sort of formulaic quality mm. where it feels like no one's heart is really into the material that I think in the best romantic comedies, it really does feel like everyone is very invested in the world they're creating and leap year is the opposite. It really just feels like, okay, here's a formula we can plug some famous actors into and no one really cares about this and we'll turn it out and I'm sure there'll be an audience for it. And there was, unfortunately, because it's, <laughs> I, if Ireland if Ireland was not so committed to our neutrality and our role as a peacemaker <laughs> in the world of, of sovereign nations, I'm pretty sure Leap Year would be categorised as a fucking war crime. <laughs> it is chronic. <laughs> it's... Yeah, it, 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 it's bad for a number of reasons. And even if you take away the the inaccuracies and stuff, I was, um, I was, I, I often think about, you know, sometimes there's, you might get an inaccuracy or a misunderstanding in a film and no one cares. I think the, like the very, the moving reading of the poem in Four Weddings and a Funeral, that um, when John Hanna reads the Funeral Blues by W.H. Auden, that was originally written, that poem was originally written satirically. 
like as a joke be about, about an unpopular politician dying and people pretending to care but no one cares because John Hanna so, sold it very well and you feel like you, you feel like a very pedant, a real pedant to criticize that whereas the inaccuracies in leap year just almost highlight the lack of care that that's that's, that's present in every other part of the screenwriting the direction the acting everything else I always like to compare Leap Year to one film that's sort of, it's kind of, it takes the same uh, inaccurate and badly researched approach to its portrayal of Ireland, but Mm -hmm. it's nowhere near as bad. And it's uh, a 1997 movie called The Matchmaker. I don't know if you've seen it. It's uh, Janine Garofalo and Dennis Leary and uh, a few others. But the romantic lead is, is played by by, by David O'Hara. And uh, David O'Hara is a Scottish actor born to Irish parents. He, he You'll know him from like, he's that guy who's in everything. Every gangster movie, he's in it. He's uh, He played a, a, an Irish gangster in The Departed. But he sells it really, really well. He, his Irishness is just, it's just there. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't look as phony as Matthew Goods in, in, in Leap Year. It isn't as, it isn't as cliched. It isn't as hackneyed. And and I think Ginny Garofalo is actually, she's really, really good in this because she's a comedian and mm-hmm. she can play this entire thing tongue in cheek. And actually, She's not, it's not a passive experience of a really, really weird Ireland that totally takes her out of her comfort zone. She's, she's there, she's there sort of almost against her will. And I I think she plays it really, really well. Um, And it's just, it's, it's, it's harmless. It's enjoyable. It's not, it's not offensively bad. (laughs) Not offensively bad. That's the, that's that's the, that's the target we're aiming at. (laughs) I think, uh, (laughs) I think. I think part of the problem with romantic comedies, and and this goes back to When Harry Met Sally, but when Harry Met Sally does the sort of boy meets girl and they slowly realize they're perfect for each other, it does that basic storyline so perfectly that it was almost like the subsequent movies, they, they increasingly felt like they needed a big premise. It was like, okay, we need a hook. People know the basic romantic comedies, so we need... You know, he's a ghost or this, you know, failure to launch. Like, here's a here's a woman that works to get men out of their parents' houses or something. And, and this is absolutely what Leap Year is, which is that mm-hmm. it's a woman, this very uptight, controlled woman played by Amy Adams has to go to Ireland. And because there's a tradition where she's allowed to propose to her boyfriend on Leap Year, as if that's a thing she couldn't do at any other time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it has to be a hook. So it's like, okay, she's going to Ireland and she's going to meet this Irish guy and they're going to go on this road trip. And I think a lot of times the hook then ends up, you know, what you really want to watch in a romantic comedy is just beautiful, nice people fall in love. But I think it's something like Leap Year and, and a lot of these other movies that use Ireland as sort of their big hook. It's like they mm-hmm. become so invested in trying to find the comedy in that in that hook or in that culture clash that you almost lose out on the charm of just two people falling in love with each other definitely and that the way that hook is used is interesting we mentioned the quiet man where it was an an american guy uh pursuing uh and winning an irish woman but in the more in the in the 21st century it's generally been an irish guy and usually a an american woman or an English woman in some cases, but it's the idea that is that there's been a switch that there that the perspective and maybe if 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 romantic comedy is as you say typically made for a female audience, that maybe the, the audience is relating with the woman uh who's who's interested in the Irish guy. Yeah, I think that it's definitely you know, I think we as Americans we like our <laughs> accents <laughs> of the British, Irish, Scottish region. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that definitely becomes sort of a shorthand for, you know, making a romantic leading man charming. Although I think then the downfall of these movies so often is that they end up casting English actors who, or, or Scottish actors in the case of PSA love you, Mm -hmm. who then do absolutely terrible Irish accents that I think even I, as a not, you know, hugely educated person on accents, I can listen to that and. And get the sense that something is not quite right in this. And it, and it's slightly confusing when there are so many talented Irish ac- actors that somehow we keep getting these terrible Irish accents from, from but other that's, people. That's, that's the bit that really pisses me off because all of the supporting actors are usually cast locally. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, like like Leap Year, like Leap Year has no problem going out and getting uh, Irish actors uh, and you know male and female like Dominique McElligot, uh, Peter O'Mara, McDarrell Farta. Like the supporting cast is like everybody who was working in Irish film or theatre at the time, and mm-hmm. yet for the main role they've given the romantic lead to someone who absolutely butchers any attempt at an Irish accent. I just don't get it. Like, and the strangest thing is that this, these, these movies were being made at a time when there was more, I guess, young Irish leading men in Hollywood than ever before. Like, we obviously, the you know, you would have had Gabriel Byrne and Liam Neeson and Pierce Brosnan at different stages in the in the nineties, and you know, a bit of busyness, but you suddenly had a, a, a real glut in the noughties. And this happened at the same time, but none of them were saying yes. Yeah, maybe uh, P.S. I Love You, but a very different film of Colin Farrell was in it instead. And but P.S. I bleed and love you, are <laughs> The at least the accent wouldn't have been awful. I mean, um, what's his name? Jared Butler yeah. did apologise to the nation of Ireland for his accent in P.S. I love you. <laughs> I think with these movies, you know, so often, particularly the ones we're talking about, they are a big American studio comedy that I think is probably aiming primarily at an American audience, and there is a sense that, like, well. American people probably won't care. And they're they're probably not wrong. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of people who, you know, accept those accents and don't really think about it. Um, but I do think maybe it speaks to the sense that that as we get into the later, the later 2000s, the early 2010s, that there was this sense like, oh, romantic comedies, no one really cares. Just put it, plug in the formula. We don't really care if the accents are right. People will watch them anyway. And it's unfortunate because I think that, that you can get such... You know, there are incredible Irish actors and they can turn in very compelling performances, as we see, I think, sometimes more in romantic dramas than in romantic comedies. But, yeah, it's a shame that that like I would absolutely love to see a Killian Murphy romantic comedy. I feel like he has such a strange energy. It would be fascinating to see that in a in a romantic comedy environment. Me too. God, that, Red, that Red Eye manic. started like a romantic comedy. Yeah, I was actually—I was trying to remember in Red Eye. I—I I couldn't remember if he was American in that, which he is. But I was like, "Is that almost is like the closest we've gotten?" Is <laughs> the start of Red Eye. <laughs> It actually started like a great romantic comedy. The, the scene when he guesses her drink is uh, yeah. is, is so cool, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, of course." He turns out to be a serial killer uh, who's also an assassin. Hey, hey! Spoiler alert! <laughs> it's called Red Eye. <laughs> Look at the poster. Yeah, that's the name of the flight. That's the name of the, that's the type of flight it is. It's an yeah. overnight flight. I thought it was a charming romance on an overnight <laughs> flight. <laughs> yes, because that's when people think about falling in love, they think of a red eyes. <laughs> Listen, it's still more romantic than Leap Year. Even how it actually turned out, it's still more romantic than Leap Year. <laughs> yeah, you're maybe not you're maybe not entirely wrong with that one. Uh, I feel like one one performance, one actual Irish performance that really stood out to me was um Jonathan Rice Myers and Bend It Like Beckham, which isn't really a romantic comedy, but is sort of a, a comedy aimed at women, so sometimes gets lumped mm-hmm. in with that. And he is sort of playing the the male romantic lead in that. And it's such a charming again, sort of like more naturalistic performance because he's not someone putting on a terrible accent. He's just, you know, an actor mm-hmm. playing a character. Um, yeah. So that was one that was, I think, really, you know, that was like a, a formative movie for me growing up. I really so, like that movie. I really yeah. like that movie. And my favorite thing about the romance subplot is it wasn't the be all and end all. Like the 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 aim of the game was the, the like the whole point of the plot was for Jess, the main character, to succeed at football and also sort of win her family's approval. And the fact that, you know, she had a love interest, um, that really, it was kind of, it was incidental. It was nice. It was lovely. And I really thought initially, like when I was the first half of that movie, I just thought like, the reason I like this is this guy hasn't been written Irish. They're just letting Johnny Reese Myers use his, mm-hmm. his real accent. But then... He he does raise the point. His Irishness becomes a plot point when he starts to say, like, well, I'm Irish, so obviously I understand what an Indian Sikh is going through, which is mm. just just slightly misguided, just ever so slightly misguided, <laughs> but still cutesy in, in the context. Yeah, that I guess when you don't have when you don't have Irishness as this sort of pastoral, you know, world that Amy Adams needs to go to and lose her horrible uptight ways. Um, the other <laughs> thing is sort of just like a sense of otherness. And I was actually thinking of in Downton Abbey, there's a character, there's the Irish chauffeur who ends up having a love story with 
one of the daughters in that family. And that's mm-hmm. a, a different sort of case of this sort of Irish otherness in a way. In that case, it's because he's like a radical socialist and they're this, you know, moneyed family. But that's another example of, I don't know, a way in which, yeah, Irishness is sort of connected to some sort of. Yeah, but they let him Danger. live there. In oh, the yeah. End. They, let, they let him oh, live yeah. there. So they, show, right. they show that they're the good guys. They're so the, gracious. The ultimate end of Downton Abbey is let's take an Irish socialist and make him a aristocratic <laughs> capitalist. And that's yeah. the happy ending of the story, which I think reveals a lot about Downton Abbey's um, that's, that's his learning curve. political. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. My wife has been re-watching Downton Abbey recently. So I, I recently saw the episode where he admits to his sister-in-law that he's turned his back on socialism when he truly believes that capitalism could work. And I'm like, no. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a bummer of an arc for (laughs) Tom Branson. But at the beginning, there was something interesting. And I think the contrast between him and everyone else. And and then ultimately that show is too sympathetic to its main family to ever really go through with that critique. Yeah, the the, the kind of the the feudal system works um, kind of message is very, is really hammered home sometimes. But yeah, if you're, if you're nice to your serfs, they'll, they'll, they'll love you for it. (laughs) (laughs) Christ. (laughs) Denton Abbey, gotta tell you. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at wttepodcast.com. I don't know, actually, if you would have seen this movie, Caroline, because um, it, it did have a US release and it was distributed across the US. But have you seen a movie called About Adam? from the year 2000. What I love about About Adam is it totally inverts the lazy trope around the bad accents because it's set in Dublin and you have this young guy called Adam played very, very well by Stuart Townsend. And the beauty of it is you have Kate Hudson who has the horrendously bad Irish accent in this Mm. one. Uh, She plays one of three sisters. And the great thing about, you mentioned earlier on that like these movies are marketed at an international audience that doesn't really know what a real or authentic or good Irish accent sounds like. So you end up with this um, unique uh, experience of three sisters played by Kate Hudson, Frances O'Connor and Rosalind Linehan, an American woman, an Irish woman and an English woman. Sounds like a joke, but Mm -hmm. this is it. Uh, And you have these three sisters who have three wildly different accents who are all from the same city and they have a different accent from their love interest, uh, Adam, who's also from the same city. So it just sort of turns it on its head. But it's a very, very charming film, actually. It's quite cute. It's about a a young man who is uh, having a romantic affair with all three sisters and potentially also the brother at the same time. And (laughs) it it is a unique hook, actually. You know, you, you mentioned that romantic comedies were looking for that unique hook. I think you know, they've done it well. Jerry Stambridge, an Irishman, directed it. So I think that also helps it be a little bit sympathetic to Irishness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's enjoyable. But for once, we get to listen to women with horrendous Irish accents instead of men. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Was PSI Love You hit in America? Uh, I think it did well. Yeah, I don't know. if hmm. Like, it was certainly a film I felt like I was... A, I hadn't seen it until more recently, but I feel like it was a film I was aware of at the time. Now I'm just checking what its box office actually was. 156.8 million on a budget of 30. It was a fucking smash. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Doesn't seem like yeah. it was well-reviewed, but certainly... <laughs> I guess found its audience, yeah. <laughs> nevertheless. It, it's a it's a it's a peculiarity. Is in Ireland, it, the the author of the book was the daughter of one of, um, one of our prime ministers. Not maybe not one of the most popular ones, better. I'm no comments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Celia Hearn, her father's Bertie Hearn, who was um, uh, Taoiseach of Ireland for about ten years during during the Celtic Tiger, and shortly after he, shortly after he stepped down, we had a massive financial crash. And yeah, and these, there are theses to be written on whether these two things are connected. 
I but I like the thing is like I don't think the book is necessarily bad, and I don't think we should like be yeah. looking at Cecilia Hearn's father's political career as a reason yeah. for why the film sucks. the The fact of the matter is, it's a miscast film, mm-hmm. um, and 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 yeah, this idea that oh my god, I mean, I don't know does. Does Galway Girl play a, f- a pivotal role in the book? I don't think so. I think uh, my I think understanding the is comes... the book is all set in Dublin, and they they moved yeah. segments to New York for the film. And the legendary music club Whelan's in Dublin is renamed Whelan's because <sighs> I'm not sure where people. I'm not sure if that was a copyright issue or if I believe American audiences could understand the name Whelan. So I suspect that it may have been something else like that. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm liable. To, I I look at this. I look at this film with such disrespect that I'm liable to think that it's a um, uh, that it's a, it's it's just an accent issue. Just shite, shite writing, shite performances. <laughs> Hilary Swank is shite. Jared Butler is shite. These are good actors, by the way. They've had good performances mm-hmm. in other things. Harry Connick Jr.'s in it. I like Harry Connick Jr., but he's shite. It's just <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> So you don't like this one? I know you're lost, but you do know you're in Ireland, don't you? Um, I'm staying at a B&B in Dunlaugaharry. Dunlaugaharry? No, I think you mean uh, Dunleary. <laughs> you're kidding. No. Would I lie to you? <laughs> Dunleary. Dunleary. But as you say, $156.8 million, box office smash, well done. Can't wait for the sequel. Well, there's a film I call P.S. I Still Love You, but it's unconnected. I think it's the sequel of Two of All the Boys Love Me. It's the cinematic universe of the P.S. I Love You films. Gotcha. Oh, is he still dead? (laughs) I think, I I don't love P.S. I Love You. I think it's significantly better and more interesting than Leap Year. Like, it at Mm -hmm. least, it has characters and emotions and, like, interesting ideas beyond just uptight woman and mean man have to go on a road trip. Um, I don't think it's fully successful. I do think Gerard Butler's accent is like one of the most disastrous things I've ever heard. Like it really is unforgivable. Uh, To me, he's far worse than Matthew Good. You guys obviously Mm -hmm. know far better than I do about, you know, how these things sound. But to me, it just sounds so wrong. Um, But yeah, I don't, I I, I can see the kernel of a good movie in P.S. I Love You. And that, that allows me to get through it easier than I do with something like Leap Year. I think it's a good story, though. Uh, it is a good story. And, it, and mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned earlier on, what is the hook? What makes this different from, like, what makes this any different from a bad imitation of When Harry Met Sally? Like, what is the unique, you know, reason for this? And, okay, they don't play around with the boy meets girl, but they do play around with the relationship in that, you know, he's he's dead. And uh, that that's something that is relatively unique this sort of communication from beyond the grave and how lovely that actually can be in theory. Yeah. And it sort of becomes a film about grief and processing and moving on. And again, I don't think it does all these things fully successfully. I think Hilary Swank is sort of odd casting for the central Mm -hmm. role, but again, I don't know. I do give it some credit for this is even just what it does in terms of, you know, that there's this question of like, will she find love again? after losing her husband. And I think it plays around with that in interesting ways. So I have to, yeah, I have to give it a little bit of credit, but it would not be on the top of my rewatch list for romantic comedies. <laughs> what What is at the top of your rewatch list, actually? What's your favorite Let's romantic see. comedy? So I am a huge fan of When Harry Met Sally. I think my favorite is The Wedding Singer, which is an, uh, the Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore. Um, oh, yeah. I love that comedy. One. Adam yeah. Sandler. Adam Sandler has put out a lot of crap in recent <laughs> years. It seems like there's a new one every month on Netflix. Um, but the Wedding Singer is a stone cold classic. I do really enjoy that. Yeah, yeah and, and True Barrymore. I do, I do well. like True Barrymore as well. And I will admit, I know that that Richard Curtis, who did things like Four Weddings and Love Actually and Notting Hill, I know he's a, a divisive figure <laughs> within mm-hmm. you know people that that um, like romantic comedies. But I do tend to mostly enjoy his output. I really like Four Weddings and, and Notting Hill. Um, Bridget Jones, which he also worked on, I like. Let's see. And then I'm a huge fan of pretty much anything that Catherine Hepburn did or Audrey Hepburn did both of the Hepburns, Cary mm. Grant. Um, so the Philadelphia story is a big one for me. 
that's yeah the, the philadelphia story has a very conflict because they couldn't uh, yeah they couldn't write uh the, that the that a character had an affair that tracy lord had an affair they had to come up with this very uh the way the relationship had been defined or the previous relationship had been defined on screen was was written in a very convoluted way because they couldn't just come out and say oh that one person had been unfaithful to the other yeah i think it's an example of you know, a lot of these movies, it's easy to write them off as, as being mm-hmm. fluffy and silly. And a lot of them are. But a lot of them do have more depth than they're given credit for, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, the Philadelphia story has such complex relationships. Um, like, it is a, it's a love triangle or almost like a love square where there are many complicated moving parts in an interesting way. And, and I think something like P.S. I Love You doesn't fully succeed at that, but is sort of aiming for something similar. And that, to me, is much more interesting than than just okay, we need to stretch out this meat cute into a 90-minute movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it's, it plays around with things in the way, like like um, the kind of the most famous way of getting around the Hays Code is like the the scene in Casablanca where they very obviously have sex, but they can't have sex. So it's shown through a sort of a tableau of incidental images as they cut from one scene to another. Um, like the, the the classic trope is like, if you cut to showing a train going into a tunnel, like right. it's that sort of thing. But they do it in a clever way in the Philadelphia story. And it is interesting. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a rom-com that I actually to my eternal chagrin, quite liked. And I noticed that you wrote about it recently, Caroline. Um, This is, it's known as a $30 million uh, priest and rabbi joke, keeping the faith. (laughs) Yeah. But one thing that I, um, keeping the faith is is a bad film, but it's kind of my guilty pleasure uh, as far as rom-coms go. It's about a priest and a rabbi who are friends and the priest is trying to help the rabbi uh, uh, get the girl. And the girl is Dharma from Dharma and Greg, who I really, really liked when I was younger. She was very cute. <laughs> uh, but I noticed when you're writing about it, you do make references to, to Fleabag. So you mm. you ha- you have seen what uh, a hot Irishman <laughs> using, using his own accent in a romantic comedy looks like. <laughs> True. Well, and I was actually going to bring up um, mm. Keeping the Faith, because I do think Edward Norton's character is supposed to specifically be an Irish American priest. So there is a little bit of that. Like I, I almost was thinking maybe in terms of American romantic comedies, I think they tend to do better by Irish American characters than they do by, you know, characters that are supposed to be from Ireland. Yes. Um, Cause also something like while you were sleeping, the Sandra Bullock movie, the, the family in that is, is very much like a Chicago um, Irish Catholic family. And I think they're very charmingly presented and no one is asked to do any, terrible mm. accents. Um, but yeah, Fleabag is, I think, a huge example of a fantastic performance from Andrew Scott as the quote-unquote hot priest uh, in that show. And yeah, a really interesting, like, talk about an interesting hook for a <laughs> romantic conflict <laughs> where one person yeah. is a Catholic priest and they then sort of find themselves falling in love with the woman. I think very interesting. And Andrew Scott's just such a fantastic actor and and plays that part in such sort of an unexpected way and became such a sensation because of it yeah Derek definitely. was in school with him yeah well i was, I was, really? the, I was the year behind andrew scott in school this is how small ireland wow. is caroline i was in a college society, drama society play with chris o'dowd and i was in school wow. the year behind andrew scott these are great, like, factoids to pull out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Ireland is literally that small. Like, sure. there, there's a kind of, I know that we rail against the, you know, the parochial and pastoral depiction of Ireland in American movies, mm-hmm. but it is literally that small that we do all know each other, more or less. Wow. And well, to see if you, you even see smaller. him again, tell him they did it, tell him he did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is from Northern Ireland and she was in, when she was in school, her maths teacher was Liam Neeson's sister. Wow. Yeah, this is really fitting a lot of um, stereotypes I would have assumed were not correct, but now it's turning out are, in fact, correct. You know, some correct. of them, some stereotypes are rooted absolutely, in yeah. fact. But mm-hmm. I'm glad, I'm glad, Derek, that you mentioned Chris O'Dowd, because mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed his turn in, is it Bridesmaids? It's Bridesmaids, yes. isn't mm-hmm. it? He's the romantic lead in Bridesmaids. And the reason I liked it so much is it's very, very obvious that when that character was written, Irishness was nothing to do with it. Yes, uh, and no. Because he's, what, well, what? Like, when it was written, he's a, he's a state trooper. But I think the, like, the, the Irish cop has always been kind of a trope in cinema, as has the yeah. Irish priest. 
but I yeah, but like Irish American, Irish cops are Irish American, Irish priests are Irish American, you know, especially the one set now. Okay, the Untouchables, Sean Connery's woeful accent. It's supposed to be Irish. He's supposed to be an Irish born cop. Mm. He's a Scottish Irish born cop. It turns out that's fine. Now, if I bring a, a knife to a gunfight, um, <laughs> but mm. like that's not an Irish accent. I don't. I don't even know if it's really a Scottish. It's a Sean Connery accent. He's yeah. like Liam Neeson. It's but, just his accent. But his, his, but his Chris accent O'Dowd, is, is his USP, you know. So he, why change it? We change it. But same thing with Chris O'Dowd. It's just they cast him. He's got to play the state trooper. Okay, if we have to throw in a line or two where he throws away the line, I'm Irish, for whatever reason, that's great. But for once, we're looking at a romantic comedy where the male lead is, the male romantic lead is Irish. And his Irishness is not a thing. It's not addressed. It's not, it doesn't cause some of the friction between them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's just there. It's just there. And it's, it, let's, let's just... Let's lampshade it. It's fine. It's great. Yeah. Leave it there. It's good. I enjoyed yeah. that. I enjoyed that movie, though. Mm-hmm. If anything, I would say his accent is almost confusing because while I do agree there is a tradition <laughs> of the Irish cop, certainly like, mm. you know, with an accent, maybe around turn of the century and then certainly like an Irish American cop, that's usually not associated with like state troopers in Milwaukee in the present day. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where it's sort of like, okay, what is his life story that has led him to this place? And and I'm actually really glad that was a, a case where easily they could have cast him and asked him to do an American accent, as I think happens a lot. And I'm so glad they didn't, because I think his performance is so much more charming because he can just completely be himself and he doesn't have to, you know, be th- worrying about an accent in addition to thinking about his comedic timing. It can all be very natural. And I think a downside of, you know, I'm just a big proponent of everyone using their own accents in movies whenever possible, because I think it's just so much more interesting and and mm-hmm. and leads to you know everyone having better timing and better chemistry so i give them a lot of props for for just finding a great comedian comedic actor and just letting him be himself on screen even if it is maybe not the most logical for the exact situation of the <laughs> yeah, plot I mean, it, they do have a little joke exp- kind of half explaining it but the i do remember at the time they tr- he tried it with an american accent just the same way that gabriel Byrne tried an american accent in Mars crossing uh, but chris O'Dowd said listen if an audience is going to accept that kirsten wig is choosing me over don draper um <laughs> gonna need the accent <laughs> <laughs> he's not wrong. I think he's dead. Yeah. That was a good instinct on his part. <laughs> apparently, apparently, Judd Apatow liked the accent. He liked to have it as a little curveball. He deliberately didn't want to talk about why there's an Irish Milwaukee state trooper, but it was nice to have it there. But the funny thing about it, Caroline, you may not pick up on this, but Irish people did. It's not actually Chris O'Dowd's accent. Oh, really? Because, yeah, Chris O'Dowd is from a part of Ireland called Roscommon, which which has a quite pronounced accent. And his own natural accent is that little bit more pronounced. It's that little bit more, you know, Boyle where he's from. Um, the town he's from is called Boyle. And, you know, People from Boyle were livid and they were all tweeting like, so everyone in the world thought like, why is Chris O'Dowd doing an Irish accent when he's a Milwaukee State Trooper? And everyone in Roscommon was going like, is he doing an American accent? That's not, that's not Chris O'Dowd's accent. <laughs> I was going to say me before being like, oh, I'm more cultured. I can uh, hear the Gerard Butler's accents bad. And then here I am being entirely fooled by this, <laughs> this modified <laughs> accent that Chris O'Dowd is doing. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the thing about it is, like, we 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 start to complain about like how Irish accents are represented in movies, but we we have no clue about the the difference between and like the difference a hundred two hundred miles can make between American accents. Mm-hmm. Like Irish people, Irish people sitting back watching The Departed, commenting on the accuracy of the Boston accents. We haven't got a clue. We haven't yeah. got a fucking <laughs> notion. What are we talking about? Well, I suppose that is the thing that you're you're always so much more like I I also feel very sensitive to like English actors doing bad American accents, which I do think happens a lot as well, especially in Chicago and The Good Wife. Yeah, (laughs) but it is sort of the thing where, you know, if you're from anywhere else, like, if you you know, I'm sure if you're anywhere in England, it doesn't really bother you as much that someone's doing a so so American accent because it's just not something you're, you know, used to hearing every day per se. So I'm sure we all have our, our things that we give mm. leeway to. That's definitely true. And yeah, the, the, that, because I, I, I remember that um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, when they were presenting the Golden Globes a while back, they had a good a crack at the at the amount of English actors doing um, dodgy American accents and just getting away with it. 
<laughs> and this this has come up again because um this this week i think it was just, it was announced that daisy edgar jones one the one of the stars of normal people has been cast in the movie of when the crawdads sing and which is a popular uh, book club book and that i saw just under the comments that a lot of people from the south were saying oh i would have thought they, there, there'd be one actress in the deep south they could have got to play this you know key role and especially with reese witherspoon producing you know let us down again they're giving it to an english actress um an english actress with a phenomenal gift for accents because in normal people with when we we're, were very weak in ireland we're very strict judges of, of, of people coming along to <laughs> in doing accents and she nailed it she nailed the sligo accent she did actually in fairness to her she did a very very difficult regional accent to do and she was very good was normal people i feel like it became a little bit of a sensation over here was it mm. that well received in ireland very oh yeah yeah the the great thing like it was it was almost like watching a um a tourism uh video for ireland like come to ireland on your vacation there will be sex <laughs> hmm. it's it's like that we were um, we were just so delighted that they actually they they kept a lot of our, our specific references in they didn't they didn't cave and make them kind of uh, play basketball or american football instead of um the sports they played and then and he was wearing his gaa shorts and all those things and that they they didn't kind of change the names of the colleges or, or place like that yeah one of the things about normal people and the reason it got such a, a brilliant reception here from the irish audience is that it treated the british and the american audiences with a little bit of respect like mm. they just sort of put an Irish scene, an Irish vista onto the screen. Mm -hmm. And they said, if you don't get it, if you don't get everything, you'll fill in the blanks. You'll still enjoy it. We don't have to, we don't have to take Irish sports off the screen and replace it with something you'll recognise. We don't have to take the name of like, the, the Ireland went crazy. Tw Irish Twitter went crazy when it turned out that like the guy is working in a recognisable Irish uh, store like you know the the what does he work in is it Santra or Santra Santra isn't yeah. it yeah so like the the main character Paul Meskel's character is working in a, a Connell he's working in a Santra we all have a Santra on our corner it's like the Irish version of Seven Eleven but they didn't have to make that Seven Eleven so you would understand mm -hmm. and you lose nothing you lose nothing for seeing Santra on the screen but we look at this and we go holy shit it it's that's very good. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it felt it felt good to be um, seen that well, and it, I think I think the fact the very small amount of criticism it got may have actually galvanised people's love for it. Mm -hmm. There was a there's a very popular radio show in Ireland called Joe Duffy, uh, Live Line with Joe Duffy. One or two people rang up complaining that they never they never thought they'd see anything like this in the state broadcast in their lives, and they're horrified and they're <laughs> had to grab the smelling salts. To, to give you some context, Caroline, if you can imagine a small regional radio station in in uh, the United States that has a phone-in show, except sure. except it applies to the entire country, yeah, and it's the and it's the most listened to radio show in the entire country, and it's got like people in their seventies uh, ringing up to complains about stuff, um, yeah, um. So one caller complained that the show was, quote, like something you would expect to see in a porno movie. <laughs> uh, uh, another one said, like, um, Jez, you can't be using the word slut. Uh, you might as well use the word dickhead. Uh, <laughs> um, God. Oh. And, uh, this is this is my favorite one. Like, no, no, the the. The, the the acting is beside the point and it's good to remind uh, that, that that it is legal to drive at 17 in Ireland but it's still it should be banned that's all beside the point it's filthy <laughs> so yeah solid gold but um, so just and then that's probably um, no normal people brings us fairly up to date but the um, I guess it, I wouldn't call normal people romantic comedy but I would call Sing Street romantic comedy and uh, John Carney has gone on to um, he's doing the Modern Love uh, show on Amazon and he seems to be uh, getting some more w work as a as a director of romantic comedy now and uh, Sing Street is probably yes it seems to be is a romantic comedy made with a very much with an Irish audience in mind with an Irish setting and benefiting from the fact that one or two of the um, supporting casts had international profile Aidan Gillen and Jack Rayner who are both very good in it Yes. Did you enjoy Sing Street? Yeah, I think it's super charming. I think, you know, it's interesting, I think, from 
you know, I think about this a lot that, that America's so big, like physically big, and then obviously so dominant in the world. And it's interesting to be a person that sort of exists within that culture because I like just naturally so many things cater to me. So I never feel like I'm, you know, desperate for representation of American identity, obviously. And, and if anything, then I'm just like, Oh, here's these cute, you know, here's a cute Irish movie. Here's a cute British movie. But like really until having this conversation, I hadn't really thought about, yeah, I don't know. You just have such a different perspective, I think, in, in terms of how meaningful these things can be. Cause to me, something like normal people or sing street, which I both really enjoyed, but, but I, you know, they're just, Oh, here's very charming things from a country I don't live in. But, but I, it, it sounds like at least they're, they also resonate on such a different level with you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it comes down to the fact that we don't see ourselves represented very often. Uh, and like, we love, we love the story of like, you know, a local boy or a local girl does good. We love to see people like Sir Sharonan, uh, achieving fame and success. And it's great to see things like Brooklyn, where she gets to play an Irish character. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. So because we see it so infrequently, it kind of reminds me a lot of, um, something like there was a 2002 romantic comedy, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Patrick Dempsey, um, Sweet Home Alabama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're kind of, we're on that level. Like we're Alabama. So yeah. we're waiting to see how is Alabama going to be portrayed on, right. on film? Is it going to be deliverance mm-hmm. or is it going to be sweet home yeah. Alabama? <laughs> um, you know, we get the full gamut. We get the full run. Not that sweet home Alabama does a great representation of Alabama. I don't know. I've never been to Alabama. I don't sure. know what it's really like. I take everything yeah. from um, sweet home Alabama, that Reese Witherspoon <laughs> classic. <laughs> Yeah, I, thought so. I suppose it's just like so many American movies are set in New York or LA, and then you think yeah. how many, like, and then when some, particularly even, even you think how often do you see something set in Maryland or, right, and right. then you think, well, yeah, so you probably think maybe I can think of maybe two, two or three cases, and then so you, a person from there, yeah, would, would be when something new comes along, you say, well, I, I hope, I wonder if they're going to do show this particular aspect of, I think there's a, there's a, a well-known sketch of all the Boston movie cliches that, you know, and I think I think there's a drinking game of Boston movie cliches every time kind of sure. there's, an, there's an aerial shot of Fenway Park every time someone gets shot in the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, oh, there boy. was an old trope, there was a trope in writing workshops at one stage, in particular outside of the United States, where they say, look, if you're writing in the United States, the audience outside of the United States only recognises three places. <laughs> so you've got to set your book or your movie in LA, sure. Chicago or New York. Like, there's absolutely no point in setting your romantic novel or film in Des Moines, Iowa. Right. Because it's not going to resonate with people. People have never fucking heard of it. Yeah. So, New York, Chicago, and LA, that's all we get. So, the over, over-representation of those major metropolises is, it's, it's chronic. Like, yeah, because you have for people sure. from... And just especially in romantic comedies, too, I feel like they're, they're so strongly associated with New York City in particular, and it is always nice when something branches out at least a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm open. I'm open to watching a romantic comedy set in Jacksonville. Or there you are. Yeah, why not? There you go. Why not? <laughs> there's great. There's great trivia for you there. Name a few. Name, name a few. Name, name a, a few, few state cities. capitals there, Derek. Fair play. No, I, I, I won't play a state capital game. Um, Caroline, what, what, before we cut in touch with you, if I asked you to name an Irish film, what would be the first one you think of? Mm, oh wow, what a good question! An Irish film, I guess once maybe that maybe is like the worst cliched mm. answer but that probably would be that's yeah. one that know. immediately comes to mind it is irish it is a film it's i guess what i just wanted to know for myself because it's it I, it it is interesting that i think when you actually do when irish people think of irish films they might think of ones probably like something like michael collins which when we Probably yeah. didn't, didn't make it down to broad, but I'd say internationally, probably it would be a, um, a love story that people think of when they think of Ireland. I guess something like, I guess in Bruges isn't set in Ireland, but I feel like has a lot of Irishness to it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah degree, that's something true. like that. Yeah, that's something think- we're gonna have to we're gonna have to discuss another day, like yeah. Irishness in movies that is that <laughs> yeah, aren't set in Ireland. Because <laughs> like then we then we have in Bruges and we have so much more. Like yeah, God. Is there a difference when something like Normal People or like Once or Brooklyn sort of achieves this like international appeal? Is that even more meaningful than something just catching on in Ireland? Uh, Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. We love how other people think of us. 
Mm-hmm. Like in a big way, like Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this, but like Barack Obama found that he had Irish roots, mm-hmm. that he had a great, 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 great grandfather called Falmouth Carney from County Offaly. So he came over and he visited the village in County Offaly where his great, 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 I don't know how many greats grandfather emigrated from. And we named a gas station after him. Uh-huh. There's the there's the Barack Obama Plaza down there on the side of the motorway in, in Ireland. So yeah, we love how we are seen in particular by the Americans, but also by all the countries around the world. So when someone achieves critical success or, or when something achieves critical success internationally, we absolutely love it. And then, of course, if you're cool, like myself and Derek, you have to start to pretend to hate it a little bit. <laughs> yes, I think there's, there's, there, there does get to a point when certain um, when certain Irish celebrities are, aren't kind of completely accepted. And then, and yeah, that, that, that is a whole other day's story. Obviously, there's a um, famous Americans are often surprised at how unpopular Bono is in Ireland. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, but I think that that was true ten years ago. Maybe now people are real beginning to realise why. <laughs> but <laughs> Caroline, um, where can people find your work? Yeah, so I'm on the AV Club when Romance Met Comedy um, releases a new column every other week, and then I'm on Twitter just at Caroline Sita. That's S I E D E Sita. Correct. Fantastic. It's all right. We'll we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Jesus, people can check it out. The least, if anyone cares enough, the, they'll, the least, they'll yeah. figure it out somehow. <laughs> you have the least complicated uh, surname of any of us on the podcast. Don't worry <laughs> yeah. about it. There they'll find you. Just the simple German. I guess they really, they strip it down to basics there. <laughs> Caroline Zita, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay. And until the next time, thank you all for listening. And it's a slon from me. Agaslan Wimsha. Mind yourselves. Mother Folklore is a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network and comes out every Friday. Thanks, as always, to Brian for producing and to Kirsten Cheel for the amazing artwork and to today's guest, Caroline Cedar, whom you can read on the AV Club every other week. It's a fantastic series about uh, the underappreciated elements of romantic comedies. If you want to support the podcast like so many of our listeners do, and we're so, so appreciative of them, it's patreon.com forward slash Derek. Until next week, Slon. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's a jumping off point. <laughs>